Welcome to BSD Talk, number 41. It's Sunday, May 7, 2006. We have another interview for you today, so we'll get right to it. Today on BSD Talk, we're speaking with Chris DeBona, and he is the open source program manager for Google. So thank you for coming on the show today. Uh, Thanks for having me. So uh, I guess we can start with a general question. What does open source programs manager mean? So first of all, it's important to realize about Google is we don't re- get really jurisdictional here. But um, what it means is that I have broad oversight of uh, code that comes into the company from the world of open source, uh, code that leaves the company and goes into open source software. And I have a variety of outreach programs ranging from uh, you know, representing Google and industry trade groups like uh, OSDL, and, and to groups like the FSF and that kind of thing, and also running programs like the Summer of Code. A lot of people would consider Google to be a dream job. So I was wondering uh, what it's like for you being there at, at Google. Well, it's pretty wonderful. Actually, I really, really like working here. I've, I've actually I've been really lucky in that I've had, a, I've had a very enjoyable career in computer science, as it were. So I've been doing open source now for almost 10 years, and it's, this is actually by far the best job I've probably ever had. And I've had a really, really good job. So I don't want you to think that like I'm, I, I, you know, I had a really bad job and then came here, and, and this is only marginally better. I mean, this is a really great place to work, so I'm very happy. There's, there's this great buy-in from the very top into the ideals and ideas around open source software, and it's extremely refreshing to be here. And what were you doing before you came to Google? And some of those may actually be continuing while you're at Google. I got my start. Uh, basically, I was just playing with Linux and, and having a great time. Uh, this was some time ago. Uh, I was working for a company called Tandem Computers, which was a fault-tolerant computer maker with these really big monster machines. They're awesome, but you know they were very mainframey. And then uh, I got into Linux, and I was running the local users group for a while, and Larry Augustin at, at VA uh, Research at the time, VA Software, came, asked me to come help run some things there for him. So I did. And it was weird because he wanted me to run marketing, and I was like, that was really weird, but he just wanted me to spin it up and hand it off to a professional, which was what I did. And then I spun up, you know, TechSport and some other bits, and then I worked on the uh, our initial public offering there. And then I worked at Slashdot for a while after we bought Andover.net, which was Slashdot's parent company at the time. And that was over about four years. And I was at Slashdot for about a year and some uh, as an author, and that was a lot of fun. And then I started a game company uh, with some friends, and that cratered, I want to say, about a year and some later. And then Google hired me. So, yeah, that's sort of my pathway through to Google. Wow, so you really uh, were there during a lot of the really exciting times during the growth of open source recently. Yeah, no, it was really pretty wonderful. Um, It's funny because, you know, we're sort of in like this this second coming of open source sort of right now with all these new companies being formed around open source and more and more people using it. And I just remember, you know, five, six years ago when the first sort of wave – of the open source, I don't know, in a way, a mania, you know, came up, uh, and some of the questions that were being asked then, and what's being asked now, and how it's changed—it's it's really quite fascinating. So, in the past, a lot of these open source projects burn fuel thanks to 
uh, venture capital. And it yeah. seems as though yeah. Google uh, is doing something slightly different with their Summer of Code. Right. So maybe you could describe that process and what its goals are. So the Summer of Code, uh, I want to say a, a little over a year and, year and a bit ago, I've been at Google, uh, I guess, about five months, six months. And the founders, they had this program they always sort of wanted to run, which would allow people who were in computer science programs or in colleges who were developers to continue to develop through the summer instead of having to get a job, right, a, a job that maybe had nothing to do with computer science to pay for their school, right? So they, want, they said, well, is there any way that you can keep these guys developing? Right? And they were asking me, they're open source guys, so I was like, okay, well, what's the open source flavor of this? And uh, they gave me a certain budget, and I came up with the Summer of Code. And what the Summer of Code is, is a way of basically paying students to code through the summer and have them work on real interesting problems. So in my world, that means open source, right? So now, if I were to take on, last year was 400 and some students myself, of course, I would have you know, exploded. My, my head would have blown up. But... I, I was lucky in that I knew a lot of uh, uh, folks in the open source world, and I said, what would you think if we funded sort of an internship program for you? And, you know, a lot of people had very positive, uh, very positive response to this, including FreeBSD and NetBSD. So we did that. We, we got together with about 40 organizations, and we took in a whole bunch of applications. And uh, the idea was that, uh, you know, you applied to the program. If you were accepted, you would get a $500 award immediately. And then if you succeeded to the goals set forth in your application, then you would get a $4,000 payment. And, and the applications were selected by the mentors. So, for instance, someone would apply to FreeBSD. The FreeBSD mentors would, uh, would accept or not the application. And if they accepted it, then they would work with that student for the summer and have them write interesting software. And we had pretty good success rate. Uh, if success is measured by they met the goals of their application. And we had a pretty good rate of people who stuck around afterwards. For the, for, for the great majority of the, of the organization. And it was much higher than I was expecting. So we had about 84% of the students last year succeed, right? Now, realistically, people are always more generous with someone else's money, right? So maybe it was really like 75%. But still, it was pretty wonderful. And then of those, probably a little under half stuck around and kept on working on the projects. But, you know, most of these guys went back to school. So it would, it would be kind of unfair to expect them to be, you know, long-term contributors at this point. Yeah, so that's sort of the basic structure of Summer Code. And so we decided to run it again this year. We're going to try to run it a bit bigger this year. And, so, and we've taken on a lot more organizations, and it's a lot better organized. So last year it was a lot of email and winging spreadsheets around the company. And this year, you know, we've got this really great web app, and everything is just better organized from, from tip to tail. So it's a pretty great project, and it's, it's just going great. So this year we have FreeBSD, um, since this is the BSD thing, I'm, you know, we've got FreeBSD, NetBSD, and then we have a ton of tools that are licensed under the BSD license. So, um, yeah, so we're really, really happy about that. And another thing that you're responsible for is code that's created within Google and released as open source. Right. So there's two ways to look at that, right? There's API examples, right? And then there are actually uh, open source uh, tools that we're releasing that don't require Google to exist for you to use them. Now, the API examples we've released under all kinds of licenses. BSD, GPL, Apache, you name it, right? So in the beginning, we were releasing mostly under the BSD license, and we've recently been doing more around the Apache license because there's a couple of things in the Apache license we sort of like a little better. But the nice thing is also is if um, we feel that a tool is more appropriate under a different license, say uh, a BSD license like with libjingle, uh, which is our uh, implementation of our ringing specification for, uh, for Jabber, so for Google Talk, um, we use Jabber. 
and for our, our voice component of Google Talk, we wanted to make sure that that too was released under an open specification. So we, we, really, we put it into what's called a Java enhancement proposal, and we opened up the signaling specifications and released all that software under the BSD license. So, uh, and also I think the GPL. And the reason we did that was uh, mostly for compatibility with existing tools, because uh, as you know, the BSD license is the second most popular in the world. And we want to make sure that people are able to use the stuff that we release. Yeah, I did notice of, of the open source programs, uh, a bunch of them were, were BSD licensed. Yeah, right now I, I still think the majority are BSD licensed. Um, like, for instance, our, uh, our, our Malik, which if you, if you go on the site and you click on performance tools, we've, we've released our own Malik, and we've also released our, our sparse hash table implementations, and those are all under the BSD license. I think that's, that's kind of interesting because I think that Google is known for being a Linux company, at least when it comes to what's happening in the server rooms. Yeah, you know, so if you look at your average Linux distribution, though, Linux is, of course, under the GPL uh, version 2. But then you've got all these tools, right, many of which are BSD, many of which are Apache, many of which are uh, under the GPL and LGPL. So, so yes, we're, we, are, uh, we use a lot of Linux here at Google, but we also use an awful lot of open source. And, you know, we really do like, as a company, we sort of agree with the ideals behind uh, open source software in general. So it's pretty great. And one question, I don't know if it's really uh, anywhere near your areas of responsibility, but mm -hmm. talking about supporting open source, right. um, there's one common criticism of Google is their desktop applications that they've been releasing right. and their uh, commitment to multi-platform. Right. I didn't know if that was an area that you deal with at all. Well, I work with that team sort of uh, orthogonally. So right now, uh, the sad truth is that BSD doesn't have the desktop penetration even that Linux has, much less that of the Macintosh. So when we, uh, when we do release things, we do try to keep in mind sort of uh, cross-platform compatibility. However, most of our desktop applications came by way of acquisition over the last couple of years. So if you look at Google Earth, which was originally Keyhole, uh, that came from a company, I believe they're based in Maryland, and uh, we purchased them. And, you know, we're working on porting them. Now, luckily, Earth isn't the most difficult uh, application to port, but it will take some time. So we have a Mac port out now up on the site, and then, you know, we're working on ports for the other platforms. Now, that said, BSD is not a very high priority because of the lack of desktop penetration. Uh, and I, I'm not going to lie to you about that. I don't know what the state is of BSD running like Linux binaries. I mean, you can tell me more about that. And it actually might be really interesting for your for your listeners, although they probably already know. And I'm just showing my ignorance of your operating system. You know, there, there are uh, Linux compatibility layers among right. other uh, operating system compatibility layers, but right. uh, I, I don't know how easy it is just to run a Linux binary. Right. Yeah. So I'm not going to lie to you. I don't think the BSD is really a uh, very high priority at all. Although Linux is sort of in a happy little, somewhat high priority uh, place. Although high is a strong word there too. The cross-platform uh, release can be very, very difficult, especially when you're sort of saying to yourself, "Okay, who's actually going to use this? You know, how much trouble is it worth, and, and all these things." And, and the thing is, I know how much it sucks to hear that because you know I've been I've been running Linux myself now for ten years, and it stinks to hear, "Oh, well, it's probably not going to work because there aren't enough of you, right?" And you're like, "But I'm important, and you are." It's just you know, you have to think sort of in the aggregate when you're allocating engineering resources. Of course, if you released the code, I'm sure there'd be plenty of developers in the world who would love to. You are pick absolutely up that right about that. You are absolutely right about that. And so, yeah, so we're really, you know, the thing about releasing code is that you got to start somewhere, 
And right now, we've been sort of putting our engineering resources into releasing things like these very fundamental base libraries that we use, things like our core dumper, things like uh, you know some Python libraries. You know, we've released only about 200 and some thousand lines of code, but it's actually increasing quite quickly. So you know, the more we can release, the more we can release later. I've heard it on lots of other podcasts where people say that releasing code that you've purchased can be very difficult because of um, agreements and copyright sign-off and all that other stuff. It's never as simple as just pushing the code out there. No, it's not. But more importantly, you know, um, when you're releasing code um, that you haven't been planning from day one to uh, support, it can be doubly difficult. <laughs> you know, so suppose you're writing a Windows program, for instance. Suppose you really buy into the the model view controller sort of uh, MFC world that they that they go for. Right? Well, if you used MFC, it's actually really hard. Well, the Wine makes it easier now, um, the Wine Libs and stuff. But once you start grabbing this thing that just looks normal to you when you're just developing on one platform, you know, and you realize it's very abnormal when you go to something like the Macintosh or BSD or Linux, it can be uh, really tricky to port later because you, you've made these assumptions about the operating system that simply don't persist from one to the other. We're, we're no strangers to this in open source. We see this kind of thing all the time. But when you're buying a company and they've had this very, you know, sort of, gosh, we just have to keep paying people sort of existence, it's, uh, it's different. All right, well, maybe changing gears a little bit. Talking about the general philosophy or tagline or whatever you want to call it for Google, uh, the mm -hmm. don't be evil. Sure. How is that going? Uh, doing a pretty good job of not being evil? I really do think so. It's one of the reasons I actually came here. You know, I, I was presented with a couple of pretty interesting offers when I was looking for a job. And, and the opportunity to come to Google and help sort of form their approach to open source software was very, very appealing to me, mostly because of this philosophy. Not mostly, but a, a big part of that was that. I mean, it's nice to know that people actually have the right intentions. And it actually comes up a lot here. I mean, people sometimes think it's just sort of a slogan and stuff. But, um, and I'm not really a mission statement kind of guy. But it, it really does come up, and we really do care about it. And, and of course, you know, the question becomes, what's evil? You know, and, and who decides? And, and that kind of thing. And that can be an interesting conversation. But it does happen here. It's not just rapaciousness, which can kind of happen in companies sometimes. And I think success lends to that, because a lot of people assume that a concentration of influence itself is evil. Right, And so as you become more successful at a company, you obviously gain a lot more influence in people's lives, and people view that with suspicion. Right. But hopefully Google will continue to stay fairly open and communicate well. Well, so far I've been pretty happy with how it's, how it's been doing. So the non-evil thing. So, yeah. Anyway. And another project you've been um, working on recently is your own podcast. And I didn't know if you wanted to take a, a minute to plug that and let people, sure. uh, if people want to continue to hear what you have to say, where can they go and what's it about? Yeah, so I do something called Floss Weekly. Um, so I used to do this this TV show, The Screensavers, uh, with Leo Laporte on Tech TV, and that's you know long gone. But Leo contacted me about a couple months ago and said, "Hey, you want to do this podcast thing?" And I'm like, mm, "Okay," because I thought about it because you know, I blog and stuff, but I hadn't really had the impetus before he called me uh, and said that he was interested in doing something. So we're still trying to sort of figuring out what that means, Floss Weekly, right? But you know what I've been trying to do is interview people who are writing software. And actually, I'm trying to keep it fairly technical. And that's a, an interesting place to be because a lot of podcasts don't talk about the actual technology so much and don't get into the details of the technology. And I think that, and that's okay. I mean, you know, more power to them. 
And there are very, very popular podcasts that are like that. But I, I sort of wanted to concentrate on the people who are writing the technology and the people who are in the middle of this stuff, and not so much the the business side of things and 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 sort of the the fanish sort of parts of it. I wanted to more concentrate on where does Pearl come from, where is Pearl going, you know, things like that that maybe aren't always exciting for the average podcast listener. I've, I had a couple of people like holler at me, I don't want this language stuff, and it's like, well, sometimes you're going to get it. You know, that's sort of the benefit of podcasts. There's a ton of them out there, right? So. Anyway. And you don't you don't have to pander to the average. You pander to your audience. Well, you know, if you think about it, it's like there's a lot of people like you and me and, and the people who probably listen to your podcast. I mean, anything with BSD in the title is going to attract a certain, you know, kind of listener. And it's it's okay to talk about this stuff. It's, it's completely okay, and it's really interesting for a lot of people. So there you go. All right. Thank you very much for talking with me today. Yeah, yeah anytime. You know, I'm, I'm happy to do it. Thank you. Bye. Bye. If you'd like to leave a comment on the website, or reach the show archives, you can find them at bsdtalk.blogspot.com. And if you'd like to send me an email, you can reach me at bitgeist at yahoo.com. That's B-I-T-G-E-I-S-T at yahoo.com. I'd also like to thank OpenBSD and their developers for the opening song here, which is the opening song for their 3.0 release. Thank you for listening, and we'll catch you next time.